I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Hello, I'm Mitchell Kaplan, and I'm very excited to be recording my podcast, The Literary Life from the Miami Book Fair. This is our 35th anniversary, and we're going to have a very special time together as we'll be talking to some of the most interesting, important, and timely authors writing today. Writers like Tina Brown, Tiare Jones, Doris Kearns Goodwin, and Pete Souza. So join me for this special edition of The Literary Life, recorded at this year's Miami Book Fair. Hi, this is Mitchell Kaplan, and you're listening to The Literary Life at the 35th edition of the Miami Book Fair. And I have the pleasure of being here with Jason Reynolds. You know Jason as the New York Times bestselling author of All American Boys, the track series, Long Way Down, For Everyone, Ghost, and Miles Morales, Spider-Man. Jason, I just saw you give an amazing talk to a room-filled with middle school, um, with middle schoolers. And as a former teacher, I taught high school English for a while. I've never seen anybody respond and have those kids in the palm of your hand the way you did. And what you did, which was with such a sense of honesty, is you told a bit about the story of your life. And I'm not going to have you go through that whole thing again. (laughs) I appreciate it. But tell me a little bit about how you came to be a writer. So I... I um, first thank you very much. That, that's kind. I, I think for me, the story, the, the Cliff's notes of the story is that I I grew up in an environment where reading wasn't necessarily a thing that anybody did around us. We didn't see books. We didn't uh, know anyone who was writing books. We didn't necessarily see our parents reading books. Um, books meant school, and the kind of books that we were being taught in school were books that felt very disconnected from our lives. The argument that I often get is, well. The universal themes are there, and that is true. But what we desperately needed to see, what I desperately needed to see were the details of my life. And for me, those details were things like the ice cream truck, things like, you know, Michael Jordan, right, Michael Jackson, 
right? The things that really colored my my childhood and that still sort of, um, you know, come to mind when I think of what childhood meant for me in the 80s and the early 90s, right? Hip hop, right? Rap music. Um, and also some of the stuff that w- wasn't so savory, right? You had to deal with drugs. The crack epidemic took over our communities. You had to deal with HIV. You had to deal with gangs. You had to know. You were living in Washington, D.C., yeah, right? I was living. And, and so you had to, and my family were always in D.C. and everybody was there. And you kind of had to know which block you could go down, which block you couldn't. Um, who lived where and, and, and what was safe and what wasn't. What's that smell? Right. Why are they acting the way that they're acting? Uh, What's wrong with this person or that person? Who are those guys on the corner? What are they up to? Right. Can we go to the carryout to get Chinese food or chicken and this and that and the third? Who are the people in the carryout at three o'clock in the morning when we come out of the party? Right. Who are like all of these sorts of things that I that that didn't make my life. um, You know, people think it's all like, oh, it's challenging. It's like, no, it just was what it was. It's your life. It just was my (laughs) life. It's like this is just we had a good time. But it, it. but that's what I never saw in books. You know, whenever we were reading books, it was about the 1960s, 1970s, right? Roll of Thunder, right? We're reading. So, and all those books are incredible stories. But when you're talking about and to young people who are struggling with literacy, it might help to engage them with that, which is at their eye level first. Yeah. And then we can get to all the other books. And so I discovered reading and writing through rap music, through reading rap lyrics. Um, and that taught me poetry and figuring out that these poems that I'm reading and this music that I love are directly connected and on the continuum of the poems that I'm learning in school. And and talk about Queen Latifah. Queen Latifah was the first tape that I bought with my own money. I was 10 years old when I when I found when I had that tape and, and listened to it day in, day out, listening to her rap about funny enough, or not funny enough, rap about women's empowerment back then, right? right. In 1990, listening to her talk about, you know, ladies first and U N I T Y and 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 you know, there's all of these songs that as a young person, was helping me understand the world around me, um, but also was catalyzing me when it came to my obsession, what would become my obsession with language and the power of language. And so Latifah was first, and then I started to sort of write these lyrics and and write poems that I modeled after her her raps, you know, and those poems were the things that got me through, the things I dealt with in middle school with my family, sort of, you know, dealing with broken home stuff, you know, and in high school, dealing with my brother's ups and downs and my mother's ups and downs and all the family stuff that families have. Right. This is not about my story. Isn't an isn't an anomalized story. Right. Right. It's only a not. It's only an anomaly because I became a writer. Right. But the, but the writing helped me suss out my life in the midst of all of the ups and downs that life often tends to bring. Well, and if you remember, there's a young girl in the session who asked about, is it okay? Basically, she was saying, is it okay to let people know about your fears? Yeah. You remember? And uh, absolutely. You know, and or to let you know, share things about your life. And I think when you were doing all of that and what I heard so clearly and what is so amazing about your books and also about you is that you found your voice. Absolutely. And finding your voice is the hardest thing that someone can possibly do. You know, I, I, that's, that's all I really care about. At the end of the day, young folks, you know, I love them dearly, but what I really want them to know is that's, that's the key to all of it. If you can find your voice, find out who you are, if you can tap into identity, a singular identity, the one that makes you you in the relationship to the one that makes you right. we, right? In relationship to that one, right? But the one that makes you you, if you can tap into that and hang on as tight as possible, um, I think it, I think it gives you liberty. I think, it, I think it brings you freedom. I feel good knowing that I can walk into any space, talk to anybody as myself. And that me being me, the best possible way that I can has opened every door I need to open. I haven't had to pretend. Um, I get to stand. Was that you always? No. Or you were? Were you? 
I can't ever imagine you ever being introverted, but was there ever a time when you felt stunted where you could not speak out as to who you were? I know. Not, I, I, you know, I, I haven't always been this confident. And there are moments where I'm still not so confident, right? I mean, I have my stuff like everybody else, you know, like shit is real life, you know, like life is life. But I, my mother raised us to believe a few things. Number one, everything you touch turns to gold. Number two, you can do anything. Made us say that before we got into bed every night. We could not get into bed no matter how sleepy we were until we recited to her that we could do anything. Forced it out of us, right? Uh, number three, take pride in your work no matter what. Number four, life is only about one thing and one thing only, and that's service. These were things we were raised with, right? What was your, tell me about your mom. My mom, so what, my mom is a giant of a woman. You know, she born and raised in South Carolina, moved to Washington, D.C. when she was 10 years old, grew up in the hood in D.C., um, took a job at 15 in the mailroom of a company uh, and stayed in that gig till she was 55, Right, worked her way up the corporate ladder to become an executive. Raised all these kids on her own. And she went to college. Yeah, she while she while doing all of that, took fifteen years, got her college degree. Wow. Um, worked her way up, retired, beat cancer, and then became a school teacher for fifteen years, which oh is what she's still God. doing at seventy three years old in elementary. Right, wow. we're talking about a lady who is a force. I don't have permission to be weak. I don't have permission right. to be lazy. When you're raised in a household where you watch your mother slave away every day to make sure that her kids have a roof over their head and food in their stomach and a fair swing, even though she didn't understand that I wanted to be a writer, she didn't understand what that meant because I was so far outside of her reality and her wheelhouse and her opportunity and possibility, right? right. But she put me in a position to know that I could do whatever I wanted to do and that who I am is enough already. So when it came time to me, for me to write these books, I knew for a fact that I had something to offer. I just had to mind myself to figure out where it was. Did she ever push back as you were going on your journey? I know your oh, yes. parents always push back, but did she have that kind of, did you have a sense of unconditional love from her as well, I, where, you had, where that was floating you as you moved forward? I had unconditional love, but that love didn't always look like support. Yeah. Right? My mother was afraid. I mean, look, man, my mom, we're talking about a, I'm talking about a black woman who grew up in the 50s. Yeah, who's frightened. This is a very son. real thing, right? And so, and so for her, it's like, look, kid, find you a gig and start you a 401. Security yeah. is key. Right, right. Because you don't get no second chances. You right? took the road very less travel. Very less travel. For my family? Yeah. Absolutely. She's like, ain't no second chances. So you get you a job. Right. You hold it down. You build you some retirement. You like These are the things that you do for safety purposes. And I said, I don't want that, though. I don't want any of those things. And we had, my mother and I never had any problems until I was 20. I left, moved to New York at 20. And from 20 to 25, we just, we butt heads. Did you graduate from college at I 20? Did. I graduated at 20. Wow. So you started early? I started early. Wow. I, I skipped early in life and then became a knucklehead. And then <laughs> it's, it's crazy. I got out of school early and uh, moved to New York and got going. And and we didn't see eye to eye for five years because I kept telling her that I couldn't get a job because my meetings were going to be during the day. Whenever I get these big time publishing meetings, they were right. going to take place during the day. So you knew at that point you wanted to write. Yes. Not necessarily be in rap. No, you wanted no, no. To write. I wanted to be a writer. Yeah. I wanted to be Langston Hughes. I wanted to be, right. you know, I wanted to be Rita Dove. I wanted to be, I wanted to be these, right. my, my favorite poets. So there was a period in your life that you didn't read up oh, until yeah. you were about 17, about 17 18, 18, 18 years old. And then it seems like you just went, oh, you took a feast. Obsession. You were obsessional about right. your, I mean, and so all of these writers that you then went to read became internalized in oh, you. Oh, yeah. And, and did that make you want to be a writer? It definitely did. It also, it helped me understand 
It helped me understand the magnitude. The reason why I ask that only is because some people would be intimidated by that. Oh, no. Reading all these amazing writers. But instead, for you, it energized you. Well, it, it energized me because I, I, I started with the traditions in which I came from. So for me, I started with like the, the, the Harlem Renaissance. And then I worked up through the Black Arts Movement. And right. I worked up through all the things happening in the 80s. So for me, everything was coming out of the Black experience. And so I wasn't intimidated because it still felt familiar. Right. right? It still felt familiar. So they were empowering me and letting me know, look. You hear this language? You hear how Zora's writing these words? Right. right? Their eyes are watching God was so far left, especially with, with, of what black people, I mean, Richard Wright and Zora, the famous beef that they had because Zora was saying, we can write in our dialect. It is true and it is honest. It is not seen as disrespectful or less than. It is a part of the English language. It is a style of English language, right? right. And then to get to the, the 70s and hear Baraka, Amir Baraka write his poems and to use all the comic book onomatopoeias, the pan, the bam, and the yeah. pow, and the zip, and the zap, and to know that I could do that, that there was all this free, they gave me freedom, man. Right. It was, it was, it was the, the academic literature that made me feel that, so oppressed, so exactly. closed in. But the, the literature of, of black people over the course of the last 100 years gave me hope. It let me know that like, oh, I could stretch out. Oh, I could do what I want to do, yeah. right? This is jazz. All over again, right? And and, and that's so what it was. So beautifully said. That's what it was, man. So perfect. I mean, it's exactly right. And that led you into doing what you do now. That's which it. Which is speaking to people in your own voice. That's it. Telling stories about who you are and telling the stories about where you came from. That's all. And in your own voice. So what was... You talked a little bit when I heard you earlier about what was kind of the... You had written a number of books. You wrote the Queen Latifah poems and poetry, <laughs> which I'm going to go out and find immediately, and I want to awesome. read them, actually. My name is Jason Mine, too. That's what it's called. It's out of print, but you can find it somewhere. I'm getting it. I'm going to make sure I get it. And then you started writing books. Now, how did it come that you started writing in the in the middle school mm. age group? How did that begin to happen? Yeah, it was never my intention. Right. I, you know... I was published. My first book um, with Harper was published as YA. I didn't. I didn't even know YA was a thing. You didn't think of it as YA. No, you just I just wrote was it. writing my thing. Yeah, yeah, I didn't know what this was. Um, they published it as YA. I was out of the industry for six or seven years, and when it was time for me to get back in the industry, I didn't have any contacts except in the young adult world. My old editor, my old agent, uh, my old publicist, everybody. You know, they were all in children's literature. And I had to find a new agent. So I called my old editor. She was like, well, I got somebody, right? So I kind of was forced to stay in this particular lane. Um, and I just kind of fell in love. I realized later on that, like, some of this, sometimes you choose things and sometimes things choose you. Yeah. You know, and now I look at it as more of a vocation than an occupation. It's something that I deeply care about um, in, intrinsically, right? And so the middle grade thing started, I had written some YA stuff. And I realized that they wouldn't let me publish more than two a year. That's, that's really what it was. I sat down with my editor when I first took the deal with Simon & Schuster. So this is 2012. I sat down with my, 2013, sat down with my editor and said, here's my plan. I'm going to write two books a year, every year. I'm going to force the door. I'm going to force them to take notice. And she said, look, kid, everybody says that when they first get a deal, it's almost impossible. Then I started writing two books a year and they were like, well, here's the thing. We can't publish two YA books a year because they'll cannibalize themselves. So then I said, well, then I write middle grade. You can do one YA and one middle grade a year. And I guess we can. So I started writing middle grade. So you came, you understood the system. Yeah, for me, look, listen, man, if there's one thing my life has taught me, there's one thing my environment, my family, friends and community and neighborhood has taught me, it is um, 
it's it's survival and it's how to outsmart the system. Well, it's also the thing your mother told you every day. Oh, yeah, my mom, of What she make you say every time before you went to bed. You know, everything I touch. I can do anything. You can do anything. I can do whatever I want to do, right? right? And so that was sort of the thing. As a parent of three kids, I wish I had done that when they were little as well. <laughs> Look, they've seen you do everything, so now they know, right? I mean, right. you run a bookstore. That's a tough thing to do. It is a tough thing. <laughs> it's a but, tough thing to do. You know, you then taught middle school for a little while as well, right? I don't know how many years it was, one. but for one year. That's, one year. It's like everyone should do it for one year to understand year, what that's like. But rough. but it's rough, but you understand. I mean, when I, when I saw those kids feeling so empowered by oh, you yeah. talking to them and you and, and the things you were saying, even about rap, about Queen Latifah, these are kids oh, they who are real. They weren't even born <laughs> at that time. And all the stuff that you were able to connect with them on yeah. is what you do in your books as well, which is so cool that you're able to make that timeless. For oh, them. man, I learned a lot, man. When I when I taught middle school, it was an alternative program. So it was a it was a, in the housing projects and it was something that young people had to come to in order to keep the benefits of the housing project. Wow. And it was a language arts program. In, was, in New York? Or in, in Queensbridge in Projects, Queen. New York City. Wow. Yeah. It was rough, right? But what they taught me was that all young people are dying for is the recognition of their humanity, the acknowledgement that even at 12, they're whole, whole humans, right. right? There's this idea that young people are less than, that they're half-baked, right? We always say like, oh, you don't even have a fully developed mind. No, it's fully developed for this particular time in their lives. Yeah. It will change and develop more, right? But they're whole the way they are, and we should acknowledge that. And I think for me, it's only in that acknowledgement that you, that you see them start to lean in. If they trust you, and the only way they'll trust you is if you give a little of yourself, right. and if you see them, like really see them, um, and speak to them as as you do, right? Speak to them like you see them. That's all. It, is. it ain't rocket science. No. It's just simple humanity. Well, right? <laughs> it is simple humanity, but not everybody has that gift, yeah. and not everybody really has that confident voice, yeah. and certainly not everybody can translate it into books. Mm. And your books, you know, have clearly done that. Have clearly struck a nerve. The kids who came up and asked questions, mm. they knew it. Uh, I loved your answer to the girl who asked what happened at the end. A long way down. What, what did you, what did you say about I that? I told her, look, I, I, you know, whatever you think happens is what happened at the end, but I've given you 250 pages. I can't give you everything. The truth of the matter is, is that to give you the end of a story is to disrespect you. It's to basically say to you subconsciously that I don't think you're smart enough to reason and use your critical thinking abilities to form an opinion about what you think happens next in the story. And we desperately need our young people to activate their imaginations because if they lose their imaginations by the time they're 14, our world is done. Completely. It's a wrap. So I need them. And my books will, every one of these books have a cliffhanger. I'm never gonna give you the answer. You have to work for that answer. We right. need you to know how to work for the answer in order for our species, let alone our country, to continue to thrive. With all of the kids that you then meet on your tours and these kinds of settings who are responding to your books, what is your feeling about this generation coming up? And I don't even know what they call them. These are middle schoolers what, yeah, right yeah, now. They, so they they're, now. they're like 12-year-olds and 13 <laughs> Z and 14. Z or is that what yeah. it is? I think so. What's your feeling about that? I think they'll be all right. Yeah, I think, honestly, a, a few things. Uh, here, here are the pros. The pros are, 
we have never seen a generation more compassionate. We have never seen a generation more empathetic or more inclusive. The things that we worried about in terms of all the different categories of people that we could label is that they don't think about the world that way. They don't, they don't have the isms the way that we have the isms. Um, and that makes me very happy. Now, what scares me is that my fear is that there'll be a generation that will know everything and will do Nothing because of um, social media, because, of social media, because they don't Google understand. And all they, of that they don't stuff. understand that when I went to the when I went to the library to do a research paper, and I had to go in that card catalog, yeah. and I had to flip through all those cards, and then I had to go into the stacks, and I had to find each one of those books, had to take those books to the table, had to flip through those books, find the pages that were pertinent for me, take those books and those pages to the copy machine, make copies of each and every one of those pages, take all the copied pages home, reread all the copied pages, and then start <laughs> to write my research paper. Exactly. Taught me discipline. It taught me persistence. Absolutely. Right? And so my fear is that they'll know it all, but they'll come in at they'll come in on a scale of zero to ten, ten being successful. They'll come in, they'll come in at five. And they'll make it to ten, but they won't be able to hold it. Yeah. Because they skip zero through four. And that is my fear. They need fortitude. They have information. Yeah. They need fortitude. Um, yeah. but I but I want to be careful because the things that we pick on them about, we pick on them like those things are just indicative to being a child. And so I want to give them some time. And generationally, almost every generation, I mean, a kid of the 60s and 70s, they certainly picked on our generation. They exactly. picked on they your generation. Exactly. They picked on you yeah. guys, the slacker generation exactly. or whatever it was. <laughs> so everyone is picked on. They've been in the boomerang generation. Right. It's, I look, it's all, it's all we'll there. All but, right. but I think we will be all right. Yeah, we'll be all right. As long as I think... And, and it's, it's a job that we all have as a bookseller, as a writer, mm -hmm. to make sure that people understand what's facts, what's not facts, yeah. and learn how to find out what's true and exactly. what's truth. Because truth, nothing is, face value, that's truth sure. is what is sort of a little bit up in the air right now. To say, <laughs> we're going to take a short break. Uh, you're listening to The Literary Life. I'm with Jason Reynolds. Back at the Literary Life, I'm with Jason Reynolds, and you have this great—I guess you call it a blog. JasonWritesBooks.com mm. is that a blog that you keep, or you put some things up there yeah. periodically? No, that that one. Uh, I am JasonReynolds.com. I am. Yeah. I am Jason Reynolds. Yeah. So one's the business that's Jason writes books, and then one's the blog. I am. Gen you're right. Mm -hmm. But at one of them, because I looked through both of them, you write. Here's what I know. I know there are a lot, a lot of young people who hate reading. Mm -hmm. I know that many of these book haters are boys. I know that many of these book hating boys don't actually hate books. They hate boredom. If you're reading this and you happen to be one of these boys, first of all, you're reading this. So my master plan is already working. <laughs> and second of all, Know that I feel you. I really do. Because even though I'm a writer, I hate reading boring books, too. Very, very true. Now, you specifically uh, talk to boys a lot. So talk about some of that stuff. And you did that series with Brendan. Oh, yeah. The, yeah, yeah. The, you wrote All American right. Boys with him. Mm. Talk a little bit about how that started, how that came to be, and what you that know, was about. You know, I think... When I got into the industry, that was sort of the, that was the thing. It was like, man, we got to figure out how to get these boys to read. My mother always come home from school, man, we got to figure out what to do with these boys. People were talking about boys as if they were the plague. It was like, man, what are we going to do about it, right? Like, it's taking over everything. And it's like, no, 
there's something else going on, right? It isn't that boys are natural. Like, like people were speaking about young men as if they were, as if they had natural inclinations to be less literate. And I just found that to be ridiculous. Right. And that we weren't asking the right questions. It's like, all right, well, then what do they like? Oh, they love video games. Okay, well, what do video games do, right? It engages them. Uh, it stimulates them in, in, in ways that books aren't doing, right? Oh, they love sports. Well, what are sports doing? Sports are engaging them, and right? And what happens in sports and what happens in video games? They all have these headpieces where they're talking to their friends. Sports, they're passing the ball, they're kicking the ball to their friends. All this camaraderie and things of that nature. Everything is sort of taking up boring space, right? It's, it's eating the boredom up, right? And so my thing was... Maybe it's not that boys don't want to read. Maybe it's that boys require, excuse my stomach, I'm starving. Boys require stimulation. Maybe it's like I had an uncle, he's passed now. Uh, my uncle said, Jason, the only good books are the books that start and shots ring out. And what he meant by that is you get about 30 seconds to get, to me, get to hook to, me. You got, you got a few pages max to hook me. Right. And if you don't, you can't be mad that I walked away. You got this, you got to get me right. And he said, "This is the way his brain is. Like this is the way my brain works." He said, "The reason that I don't read fiction, which is as we know as adults, most grown men read nonfiction, right?" And he said, "The reason I don't read fiction is because I don't know if I could give a fantasy world my time. I'd like to engage with the things that I know are real, something practical and tangible and solid, right? This whole thing. So I'm taking all of this information." And I say, well, how can we figure out how to make this work when it comes to getting young boys involved in reading? Well, the first thing I know I have to do is I got to hook them from the jump. When my first novel came out when I was greatest, the first page, the first paragraph, the kid, the kid says, um, they're playing Would You Rather. And he said, Would you rather, uh, what did he say? Something like lick the street or have shit breath. Publisher says, you know, do you really want to have a swear word in the first page of the novel? Of course. I wish it were the first word or not. You get them Of right. course, right? And, and, and to me, it's like, we got to do what we have to do. Like, I'm not right. interested in, in everybody's sort of respectability issues. Right. Like, we need to figure out how to get there, right? And so if you got to say shit, breath, then let's say it right. so that they can lean into the story. As right. brave as you, my first middle grade, the first word of the book is poop. It's the first word. You right. know why? Because boys like fart jokes. We always do. We always will. Forever and ever and ever. I'm 35. I still think it's yeah, funny, yeah, right? Yeah. right? Like, so I'm going to play into that. I don't have time to try Captain to get Captain Underpants, right? Captain, like, <laughs> this is this for me. This is like, look, if 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 boys are fifteen forever, then let's go there <laughs> right. and let's figure out how to say the things we need to say to get to the thirty-five and forty-five and fifty-five as healthy and balanced men. Yeah, yeah. But let's say that. Let's say all of that by using the fact that we know they want to be fifteen for the rest of their lives. Absolutely. Let's play into it and use it as bait. I tell people all the time, Brussels sprouts is an interesting thing in America because when I was growing up. There was no great, there was no worse vegetable than the Brussels sprout. It stank your house up. Our mothers only knew one way to make them, and that was to steam them or boil them. Right. The worst, right? They were right. like these little mini cabbages that weren't as good as cabbage, right? right? Then in 2000, every restaurateur and chef in America decided there are other ways that we can make this food. With cheese on With top. With cheese. Let's fry them. Bacon. Let's roast them. Let's bake them. Let's make sauces for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I tell people all the time, the new way of making Brussels sprouts is not nearly as healthy as the old way. But it's changed the way we think about Brussels sprouts. That is what I am trying to do. What a great metaphor. Right? I've never heard that metaphor. That is amazing. You know? That is exactly right. And you're doing it really, really well. And that um, the other thing you do is, and, and it was it was really 
fascinating. I read, I watched some of the YouTube videos mm. with with Brendan Keeley about with the All American Boys mm. and what you were both trying to do with it. Mm. Have this really, really honest discussion about race, mm. about um, white privilege, mm. about all, all kinds of stuff. That is really, really important among these kids to be able to see the world at a young age. To develop empathy, basically. Yes. And I think, you know, people were afraid of it. People were afraid of that book. They were afraid of the way we were talking about it. Um, and you know who was never afraid? Kids. Yeah. We've, we've, we've talked to 80,000 students about all American boys all over the world, from the wealthiest of the wealthy to the poorest of the poor, prisons and alternative schools and juvenile detention centers, old folks' homes who have grandchildren and all. I mean, like we're really- So the two, of you, the two of you sort of yes, engage with all these Engage in front people. of all these people, telling our personal stories about wow. our experiences with police officers, but more, police officers are just a symptom. We're talking about systemic racism, implicit bias, Absolutely. all these issues, white privilege, all these issues, sixth graders. Seventh graders, and they are always completely engaged and ask the best questions. I mean, wonderful questions like, as a young white boy in America, I'm in the seventh grade. I know this is a problem. This makes perfect sense to me. What can I do to help my friends feel safer? What can I do to be a better listener? What's my responsibility and my role? Um, even though I know it's not my fault, how do I how do I help it? Uh, progress and move forward without sort of more people being hurt. People that I love in my class, right? I'm in tech, we're in Texas and there's a group of Mexican kids, right? Mexican-Americans. And they're like, well, how does this connect to our lives? And what are the parallels you could draw based on who and where we are today and what, the, and what black people in America has been going through for the last couple hundred years? How, what are all of the, it's, I had a young man in, in um, Massachusetts stand up and said, look, I'm the only Muslim in my school. How does this connect to my life? Right. And, and he starts to cry because he's felt ostracized. He's felt marginalized in his school. He said they throw pork chops at his father's house. Right. Whoa. This young man, after that day, we had this talk in his presentation. This young man becomes the head of his class, gives a speech as the valedictorian graduates. Oh and God. in that speech references this moment that we had with him and decides to educate his community on what it means to be a Muslim American. Unbelievable. We just have to give them the framework and the well, opportunity. That's all. I tell you what. <laughs> I get goosebumps because what you're talking about, particularly, you know, I, I hate to bring everything back to our political situation mm. now. It's hard not to. But it's hard not to. But it's such an antidote to what we hear from a guy who's supposed to be saying just what you're saying. Exactly. <laughs> you know, our president is supposed to be the one leading this discussion. Mm. But the fact that it's coming from writers. And, you know, in a lot of a lot of countries, it's the writers. The writers. Who are, you know, in whether it's Latin America, whether Russia, it's Europe, no, Russia, yeah, yeah. it's writers who really fight against power that is that is unequally distributed Absolutely. in one way or another and what you're doing is just mind-boggling and and also as a bookseller I have to just thank you for being involved with uh, oh. the American Bookseller Association and the Indie First thing. You want to explain a little bit about Indie First? Sure, Indie First. I mean, you know, it's, it's basically um, the way that I like to talk about it is that I feel like it's almost like the coolest fraternity of all time. You know, it's sort of a, it's a network, right? And a system in the network of independent booksellers. Um, and, and my job as the ambassador and the spokesperson for, for these booksellers is just to make sure that they get love. I, 
look, when they ask me to do this every time, this is the second year in a row. For me, it's an honor to stand up and to say, look, there are bookstores and booksellers all over the country, some of which we know and some of which we don't, right? Books and Books is one of the ones in Miami. It's like, this is it. If you come to Miami, you know Books and Books. You know that this is a hub, a community space. This is a safe space for you to come, get your literature, hear some stories, meet some people, right? All of these things. I frequent your one, the one you got on Lincoln Road all oh, the time. Thank you. Yeah, all the time. I didn't know you come down a lot. All the time. And, we'll um, and so I love it. But there are also smaller booksellers. Oh, absolutely. Right? There are smaller booksellers who 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 are in tiny little communities and little neighborhoods. And I like to make sure they get love too. That's my job to give them some love too, you know. And it's you're wonderful. doing it. And you know, every year, every year I speak to a group of high school writers who are like thinking of maybe writing later on. Yeah. And I talk to them about we go around the room and I say, Tell me about the bookstore in your town that mm. really and there are bookstores that are little some of them are used bookstores. Some of them are just little tiny stores that have been around for a while. And I always say that you know, what we as independent booksellers are trying to do is bring the sense of community to wherever That's we it. are. And it doesn't have to be a fancy bookstore or, a, you know, it's whatever, whatever, whatever meets the needs of that community is yeah. what is important. I think it's and it's very democratic, too, because every bookstore in a community buys for that community, in yeah. a sense. And, and the fact that you're doing that and we have Small Business Saturday, which oh, is a man. great thing. Uh, I know. Uh, I'm excited. Yeah, it's a very cool thing. Oh, man. It's really ma it's made a difference in terms of allowing bookstores to continue. I just met this amazing woman last night who apparently has also been coming down. And I, I sort of knew her over the years. She's got a bookstore in Detroit that she's had for, you know, like 20, 30 years. And she's doing, you know, all of a sudden Detroit is kind of building up around her in a lot of ways. So, you know, I think you and I were kind of brothers in the same thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? I hope so. Absolutely. You know, we absolutely are. And uh, I just, I just want to, um, I just want to thank you for your voice, what you do for people, what you do for kids, what you do for people like me. And uh, I'm hopeful. I'm, I'm, almost twice your age. And I'm just very hopeful that there are people like you in the, coming up in this generation that are just speaking truth to power in ways that a lot of us didn't. Hey, I appreciate that, man. Thank you, you know? very much. And I appreciate you sitting me down and having a conversation with me. And thank you for books and books, brother. That's a big deal. Thanks. Miami ain't just a beach. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It took me a lot, lot of years to get people to understand that. The, the joke that I tell, when I, we started the book fair 36 years ago, before you were born, just about, yeah. when we talk about it, I would call up and all, the publisher go, hey, you know, we're doing this book fair in Miami, and they'd want to send me like a hell a book about health, <laughs> you know, they would do it about, you know, like, you know, how not to get a sunburn, right. you know, that sort of thing. But anyway, thank you. Thank you for recognizing it. it. All right, Jason. Thanks. I hope you like what you heard and that you'll please share your review on Apple Podcasts and also give me your feedback at Books and Books on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to my weekly conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Revolver.com. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. Thanks for joining The Literary Life. <laughs>